This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Shea Folk is always a popular guest as he helps us evaluate our decision-making process for purchasing, marketing, equipment trades, and much more. We get his perspective from working with farm operations across the nation and to learn best practices for a highly volatile year. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. If you ask farmers where their greatest concern is this year, they will likely say rising nitrogen prices. For our farm, higher nitrogen prices and our desire to increase bushels with more sustainable farming methods led me to Pivot Bio Proven 40, which can produce up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to pivotbio.com. Shea Folk works with many farm operations across the nation, helping them to dial in their true operating numbers and assisting them to become more efficient and profitable. Certainly, we are in a time of highly variable prices, and getting a handle on where we're at financially is a critical part of the ag business. As Shea says, in some cases, we may need to spend more time working on the business instead of in the business. I recently caught up with Shea at Farm Journal's Top Producer Conference, where he was speaking. We began our conversation with the topic of machinery as we think about the numbers behind a market where used equipment is approaching and in some cases above the price that was paid for it. Shay, as we look ahead to equipment purchases, I'm interested in the consultations you do with farmers. How much has truly changed over the last year? All inputs have gone higher, machinery's higher, new or used. So in general, how have the conversations changed? And then we'll dive into some of the specifics. So generally, we see a 15% uh, depreciation and inflation factor year over year. Now, from 2021 to 2022, the difference has been we've seen a 1% depreciation, but 14% inflation. So we're still in that 15% range that we normally see, but it's a whole different environment from what we've seen over the last seven or eight years. So given that then, how does that change a lot of the conversations that you have? It's definitely making people look a lot closer at the dollars and cents that go into that decision making. But more importantly, it's the long-term asset uh, from an equipment management standpoint. So how, do we, how are we driving business decision making in the equipment fleet? Are we looking at numbers? Are we looking at data? Or are we making decisions based on emotion? So walk me through then maybe some examples. Um, you know, is this the time that I need to be looking about uh, changing equipment, whether I'm going to be getting rid of old, buying new, or buying used? We know that prices are higher, but yet we need a fleet that's going to get the job done. So how should I look at it? Every farm operation is so incredibly different. So three principles that we like to look at is knowing what the net equity is in your equipment. So your assets minus your liabilities. 
And in order to understand that, you need to have a true market valuation, not guessing, not just pulling numbers off of auctions or recent sales, but going and working with an equipment partner, also known as an equipment dealer, going and working with them and saying, hey, what's my stuff worth? And, and having that appraised annually. So that's the first thing. The second thing is a three to five year equipment outlook. So if farm operations know exactly what they're gonna trade or buy or sell or add on over the next three to five years and you do a simple capital expenditure outlook so that you know, hey, in 2023, we have $300,000 of wants, needs, and wishes when it comes to equipment changes, but we only have $200,000 of working capital Where's our prioritization factor? So that's the second thing that ties into whether now is a good time to trade. The third and final thing, and perhaps the most important, is knowing what it actually costs to run that machinery. So we like to dial it into a cost per acre and then a cost per bushel for your equipment pass. Ultimately, whatever we're working with, whatever product, doesn't matter if you market in bushels, tons, pounds, uh, product XYZ, you need to know what that cost of production is, and we like to tie that equipment cost back to a cost per bushel in most operations. And if that's at a point where you can justify a change or you think it's an appropriate time, we're absolutely still encouraging people to do it because you have to stay up to date. You have to stay maintained. Unfortunately, what we saw over the last seven or eight years is people kept pushing that off, pushing it off, pushing it off, and then in 20 and 21, and even into 22, we're looking at profitable years for most areas, and they're making equipment decisions without actually having data to back up what they're doing. We got lucky this time around. You know, we had the, the cycle in the commodities, and that saved a lot of people. I have concern as we move into the next five years of volatility in, in market environments that if you don't have this equipment stuff figured out, uh, you're going to be behind the curve. You mentioned the numbers there. What's my best place to figure out then what it's truly costing me to use that equipment? Do you have any good uh, resources that people can best use? Yeah, so we run a program called Profit Manager uh, on a cost per acre. And, you know, if there's academics listening to this, they can throw the book at me. That's fine. But university rates are so variable um, when you think about where you're getting your information and resources. So ultimately what we want to look at is total, total capital cost in a, on a per-pass basis. So, for example, if you're running a harvest pass, you want to take your total combine, uh, the percent use of the tractor you know, that you're using for like your grain cart, and all the corn heads and the moving head carts, uh, and take that times roughly a 25% cost of ownership. So that 25% annual cost of ownership includes things like maintenance, repairs, depreciation, but it also includes inflation and appreciation and cost. And what I mean by appreciation and cost is if you had a sprayer in 2018 that was worth $300,000 brand new, that same sprayer today is worth 400000 when you buy it off the lot. And most times people haven't been taking that into consideration. So <clears throat> we take that 25% cost of ownership on our total capital and you divide it by your acres. And uh, that's going to get you really close on your cost per acre. And then we tweak and adjust that just a little bit based on uh, efficiencies, right? So a grower in Ohio that has small scattered fields is not going to have the same efficiency as a grower in South Dakota or uh, central Iowa. So we want to make sure that based on your terrain, your geography, who you have operating, and what your overall harvest logistics efficiencies are, uh, that that all comes into consideration. But knowing those numbers, knowing where your cost lies, is going to be so crucial moving into the next five, ten years. 
So if I know those numbers then, what is that usually driving me to do, knowing that every operation's different? Are you finding that there is any certain patterns that have developed over the last year, given this current market environment that we're in? Not necessarily over the last year. Um, I mentioned that 14% inflationary cost. That's going to hit the bottom line for sure uh, when it comes back to a cost per bushel. So how are you driving decisions off of that? Well, we need to know what your equipment cost is on a per acre and per bushel basis that directly ties back to your marketing. So for easy math, let's say your cost of production is uh, $4.50 or $5. If you have your cost overinflated, you might think that any sales below that dollar amount aren't profitable, when in reality they might be. Or the opposite might be true. If you have a margin target set and you say, I want to make 10% on this sale and your cost of production isn't accurate, how do you know if you're making good marketing decisions? So the first thing is uh, updating and getting those numbers dialed in for the current market year. The second thing is understanding that as that cost of production increases with the change in equipment values, you're going to need to watch that marketing more closely and maybe capitalize on opportunities. We're, we're staring a gift horse in the mouth right, in the mouth right now uh, when it comes to uh, the prices and the opportunity for profitability. And instead of worrying about all the fear of missing out and the stuff that's correlated with marketing, you know, there might be some opportunity to just take a profit, pull it off the table, take some risk out of the way, and, and look at a good year for 2022. So that's the actionable for this last year, I would say. You know, you mentioned that, and certainly we are zeroed in on higher input prices, but we also know that, you know, for the most part, we can sell things at a higher price. So should I be locking in those prices and just saying, hey, I can make a profit, so that is what I'm going to do? Again, I know every operation is different, but are we to that point where that's a wise thing perhaps this year to do? So I don't give marketing advice, but what I would say, and maybe from a personal perspective, is, uh, you know, we see operations here today, uh, middle of February in 2022, that are anywhere from 40 to 100% sold of covering their variable costs on next year or this false crop here in 2022 and some that are even being more aggressive out into 2023 again just because of the volatility that we've seen now i would encourage any operation listening to this to think about what are your cash flow needs what is what is your profit margin and what do you need it to be at and if you're sitting there staring at a cost of production that's five dollars right now and we have 550 570 futures you just have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, how much money do I want to make? You know, and, and that's a hard question to ask, and people will probably look at me sideways when I say that. But it's uh, <clears throat> we haven't seen a period like this since 2013. You know, it's been almost a decade. So are you going to leave that profitability on the table? That's up to you at an individual farm level. If you figure it out, you let me know. (laughs) You know, we've talked about these numbers. Or do we appoint, some people are better with numbers than others. That's just our natural abilities. But am I at a point where I probably need to think about having somebody come in and help me with some of those numbers sometimes? What do you find? Because a lot of operations, and they don't even have to be covering necessarily a lot of acres or head, that can be difficult calculations sometimes. Yeah, so I would say the education that goes into that is so important, and we're all guilty in the farm operation of wanting to work in the business and not on the business, okay? So the farm operators that are out there that know this stuff is important but haven't taken the time to do it in the past, if you can delegate some of your tasks, we call it delegating to elevate, 
if you can delegate some of those other tasks and maybe do less of the $30 an hour jobs that we really enjoy, start doing some of the $300 an hour jobs of sitting in the office, understanding your cost of production, getting the numbers dialed in. I know it's not as fun as sitting, you know, in a tractor seat or going out tending livestock or or even some of the relational things that we work with, uh, with people in the community or landowners or whatever. But truly, you have to have this stuff dialed in. Um, <clears throat> you know, what I, what I said here today at a speaking event was when you look at the next 30 years, and you can quote me, we're on record saying this, my opinion is that if you don't figure this out in the next 10 years, you might not be farming in 30 years. So the farm operations that figure out equipment fleet management and equipment cost of production by 2030 are going to be the same farm operations that are farming in 2050. Now that sounds a little a little bit of a doomsday scenario, but we're just working with we're working with too big of dollars. We're looking at too much volatility and we're looking at a market and an environment that demands for us to have a way better pulse on our business than we need to have in the past. And you have to be the progressive operation that's willing to take the time to think forward and understand that we can't just keep doing things the way we have been. We have to take it to the next level. Because equipment costs are what they are, in some cases they can be quite extraordinary for even a smaller operation. Do some of us need to be thinking about how I do things different, whether I custom hire some more of this to be done or I split uh, share? That can be difficult sometimes with some of this equipment. What are you seeing out there with folks just dealing with sometimes pieces of equipment that are very valuable but also don't get used that much during a year? That is a fantastic question. So the last three years has generated more interest in collaborative opportunities than probably the last decade combined. And when I say collaborative opportunities, I use that word very carefully because it's not alliances and it's not strategic you know, harvest operations or strategic field work. You have to be in a collaboration for the right reason. We tell people, you can think of 20 farmers in a 15-mile area that you'd never work with in a million years, but it's finding the one or two people that have the same vision, the same progressive outlook, and are willing to, you know, pool the labor, pool the resources uh, for a rising tide to lift all ships, right? So, you know, when you look at how do we do things differently, we've definitely seen the collaborations increase. The other thing that we've seen is sizing appropriately. So as we see some farm operations experiencing rapid growth, or I would say significant growth over the last five years in particular, we're going to see that continue to accelerate. So they've taken a more conscious effort, particularly when looking at the equipment valuations and the equipment use and efficiency, and said, we can do more with less by sizing accordingly. And it's not always bigger. Sometimes it's just, it's just more machines to cover more ground. But instead of focusing on what you're writing a check for, look at the value that it's bringing back. What's the timeliness that we can get this corn crop out and not have to deal with some phantom yield loss? How quickly can we get the crop in the ground to capitalize on good ground conditions and good emergence? Uh, the timeliness of spraying, making sure that we can get there, get the weeds killed, and have you know high efficacy when it comes to fungicide applications. So that's some of the diversification and change that we've seen, and, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that moving forward. 
the one thing that you mentioned there that's difficult sometimes is the timing of it. How do you see people get around that? Will that always be difficult, or can we get the equipment big enough that we can just get over the acres and we can share it with somebody else or whatever arrangement we have? How are you finding people deal with that challenge? It's a really good question. Um, I think having the right amount of people in place is crucial. So labor is a challenge for anywhere, but if you have depth and people that can operate, a lot of what we've seen has gone more towards the business strategy outlook of maybe we need to run multiple shifts. You know, maybe we need to keep that planter going for 24 hours. Sizing certainly has a portion of it, but speed is also another factor. I mean, you look at a 24-row high-speed planter that can now plant corn, soybeans, wheat, whatever else at nine miles an hour, that's not just two times the efficiency of what you were doing before. It's about 300% efficiency in the number of acres that you can cover, how you manage your logistics. So uh, speed has been a huge portion of that, the, the labor and making sure you have the right resources. And then the final thing that I would say is the support and service from your input providers. We will only continue to see the progressive farm operations and the the farm operations of the future demand and ask more of the input providers. And I don't, it, you know, if you're a, if you're an input provider listening to that, this should not be a daunting task. This should be an incredible opportunity for you to provide the value and to develop the professionalism that your business needs. And, and I think it's going to pr- create some really unique and some really awesome opportunities between farm operations and the people they work with in the future. So far, we've mostly focused on ownership, and in this case, maybe owning in, in partnership somehow with other operations. What about the leasing side of things? Certainly, that has become interesting because uh, for folks that have leases coming up, sometimes the buyback clauses has become pretty lucrative. But uh, what do you advise on some of that? Leasing is a different animal. Um, We've seen some be very beneficial. We see farm operations that do almost 100% leases. Where they struggle is they don't have the gain in net equity or the leverage for borrowing power for when you have, you know, tough years or you have a period of lower commodity prices. And if you don't have that chattel or collateral to work with, we've seen some issues with lending institutions kind of want to keep about a five-foot pole and say, well, we're going to watch you really, really closely. Do I think that's the right answer? No, not necessarily, because these operations tend to be the ones that understand what's going on in their business. Uh, but but, there, but there, there is an opportunity there uh, to not have to tie up a tremendous amount of working capital, especially for a new purchase, right? So if you're, if you're looking to try something, if you want to have uh, a better, more efficient sprayer or maybe a strip-till unit or uh, a one-off like a flamer or something like that, leasing might be a good option so that you don't have to go whole hog on investing those dollars in a depreciating asset that you're not sure is going to generate the return. So there's, there's fits for it. Um, it's still not gaining as much traction, I think, as some people in the industry thought that it might. But we might see more of that, you know, more of the, the Uber methodology moving forward, right? Someone else owns the equipment and we just happen to use it. As I think about my operation, many of us just have a operation, whether it's a C-Corp or maybe it's a partnership or whatever. Should I be thinking about, at this point, looking at different entities? Because some of this becomes 
somewhat complicated. I'm trying to get a hold of my figures. Does that help to split some of those entities out sometimes? Yes. Uh, clarity in operations is crucial, not only from an accounting perspective, but just understanding what's going on in your business. And I'll use two examples here. One is in a, an equipment entity and one is a trucking entity. So unfortunately for most truck operations, trucking is a cost reduction center. It's not a money-making endeavor. And until you separate that out, whether you like what the numbers say or not, it's really hard to understand the cost uh, that can get sunk into that type of an operation. The second thing is just a clear idea of what's going on in the business. So, for instance, if you have an equipment entity and you pay for all the fuel, maintenance, repairs, uh, you know, labor costs that are associated with that, and you have a separate line of credit there, you know to the penny what it's costing you to run that equipment and how you can progressively manage it moving forward. Uh, you know, in, in a presentation here, I was talking about. Uh, farmer Brad or Farmer A, whatever you want to call him. And, and a farmer might have, as a sole proprietor, owned land, a bin and a dryer. They got a house. They got an old chicken shed. Maybe they own a laundromat. They got prepaid expenses. They got equipment. They got trucks and trailers. How in the world do you ever decipher and make key decisions out of that? And it's worked in the past for a lot of people. And I'm not, I'm not trying to knock on anyone that has been successful by doing it that way. But we're just talking about so many dollars and so much more risk in today's environment. I think that separation needs to be clear. We often get pushback from that, too, saying, well, uh, you know, that if it's operated as an LLC or a separate structure and something were to happen from a liability perspective, they can push right through that. No, they can't. If you're driving down the road and you look up at that semi next to you, the trailer says Walmart. But if you look real closely at the truck, it says Walmart Transportation LLC. So if something happens to that Walmart Transportation LLC truck, you think Walmart's getting sued? No. It's, that's what limited liability companies exist for, and it's in the name. You need to operate it correctly. You need to have your own checking account, your own insurance. It needs to pay the bills, and it needs to have clear invoices. But there's an opportunity for liability protection there as well. Uh, we don't like to think of this scenario, but... If you have a, a four-wheel drive tractor with a tillage implement and it pulls out and an accident occurs and someone is injured or worse killed, and all of a sudden Farmer Brad has all of his assets, millions of dollars of land, millions of dollars worth of equipment, guess what they're coming after? They're coming after everything. And, and that's not a fear-mongering tactic. Unfortunately, about three or four operations a year that we work with experience some, some kind of loss or some kind of claim. One actually happened here a few weeks ago at, uh, you know, at, at a, a close client of ours. And it's scary, but if you have that protection in place, uh, you can sleep a little bit easier at night. So not only from the liability standpoint, but just from understanding a clear picture of what's going on in the business. And finally, transition planning and next generation, okay? It gets really sticky if it's you and I trying to do a, a transition between equipment and land and management and estate planning. If you can separate out those portions of the business and provide a clear understanding and a clear path for the next generation, man, you're, you're really setting them up for success. I know you aren't a lawyer, so you aren't actually writing these, but is it necessarily that difficult? Some of us say, oh, I don't want to go through that hassle. Is there really a lot of hassle to be able to do all that? 
No, it is a process, though. I'll say that uh, typically six to 18 months is kind of the timeline on getting that set up. I would say most of our clients have it set up within the operating year. So, you know, if they start now in February, by 2023, they're going to have the equipment LLC, the trucking LLC fully established, know what they're going to charge, have their rates set up, and have it set up as a, a legal functioning entity the quickest we've ever seen it done was in about eight weeks, but uh, the farmer's wife happened to be an attorney, so that certainly helped. Every year is unique. Certainly this one's setting up that way, but uh, any other things that should be top of mind from your point of view out there working with a lot of farmers? You know, the the key here is happiness and what do you want to be good at, okay? I think sometimes we get distracted at, at opportunities or chasing the next shiny thing. Uh, focus on what you're good at, focus on what you like to do, and focus on the things that enable you to have the quality of life because uh, you can get all this other stuff right. You know, you can get your equipment management, you can make a whole bunch of money, you can go down different pathways and endeavor, but at the end of the day, it's you're, you're doing it for a reason. You're doing it to build a legacy, to enjoy time with family. Don't lose sight of that. That's the most important thing. Shay, I always appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You'll find Shay as a regular part of Top Producer and Farm Journal magazine and find him online with articles at agweb.com as well. He's always good at helping us think about the numbers that make up our bottom line. That's it for this edition of our show. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com. Many of our past shows have information that's still very relevant today as we cover topics that in some cases are somewhat timeless, topics that are always impacting us in the industry of agriculture. And don't forget, you can find our daily American Countryside broadcasts on 100 radio stations, XM Radio, and at AmericanCountryside.com or American Countryside on Facebook. I hope you'll follow us on those daily three-minute features, all done on location, often in rural and agricultural America. I appreciate you listening. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.